welcome to the April 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, and I'm sitting here at the table with my good friend, Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Matt, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well myself. Good. Just you celebrated ready? the Lord's Supper this past Sunday. Did I'm you? I'm ready to go. Well, you're ready to talk, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is we're going to continue to talk about the Lord's Supper. Last month, in our March podcast, uh, we talked about uh, the Lord's Supper in terms of who can come and who can't come to the table. Uh, we call that fencing the table. Who... Who's invited? Uh, who's who's invited? not invited? Yeah. Exactly. And so this week, uh, or this month rather, what we want to talk about is uh, this the experiential part of the Lord's Supper, which is always a, a touchy issue, uh, which is always a, uh, a questionable thing. Um, people wonder, how should I feel? Should we be manufacturing emotions? Yeah, exactly. Is this a funeral service? Is this a feast? And a banquet? Do we do we come uh, rejoicing and, and jumping in the aisles? Do we come somber and serious? Uh, all these are very very good questions, and they're the the questions of experiential religion. Mm-hmm. And so, what we want to talk about today on this month's podcast is we want to talk about the emotions that should surround our participation in the Lord's Supper. So, we're no longer are we talking about those people who are not coming. We're talking about the people who should come. And what's what's the experience that they're trying to get out of coming to the Lord's Supper? Exactly. What's the, what is it that God wants to give them? What should they be expecting to get? Exactly. Now, there's an obvious danger in this conversation, and this is why I think that this topic isn't always broached. And that's the danger of subjectivism. It's so very, very easy to fall into some... Uh, into that subjective sense of feeling, particularly in America, where we're so overwhelmed with pietism. Mm-hmm. It's all about my personal feelings. What am I personally getting out of this? In fact, I just read an article by Mike Horton this week uh, where he talked about this issue of <coughs> private communion, that there's there are evangelicals out there who are saying, you know what, uh, I don't want to have to go to church uh, to celebrate communion. I want to just celebrate communion during my quiet time. And you know what? I don't have wine in my house, so I'm going to use some orange juice, and I I don't have any bread right handy. I'm going to use some graham crackers, and I'm going to have this sort of subjective experience of communion. And Mike in the article talks about – he's quoting another article from a major evangelical publication uh, where they said that this person who was writing the article liked it so much – that then they talked to 40 people and they did these tests and they came back and did studies and they said, so who benefited spiritually from having private communion? And now that's a topic we can we could address in a future podcast. Right. Should the Lord's Supper be private? Should right. it be public? Right. And we've, we've touched on that in the past. Namely, it, it should be public. Absolutely. But... In this article, then, they come back, and it's all about subjective experience. And so we want to avoid that danger. Uh, But the neat thing is that we can avoid that simply by sticking with the Scripture. Right. Because the Bible talks about some of those emotions. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how we're to feel. Right. Right. Absolutely. Because it's it's an it is a corporate meeting with the Holy Spirit around that supper this week with those people who are having whatever experiences they're going through. And no two times ought to be exactly alike. We shouldn't expect that they'd be the same. But there's a range of things that we might expect to experience in the Lord's Supper 
that we see represented in the scriptures. Oh, that's it's a good point, Matt, because it's very similar to in our reading of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. You have a whole range of emotion there. So we can't say, I can't tell you, we're about to have the Lord's Supper, get happy. Right, exactly. Well, it might be a week, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. It might be a week where you have struggled mightily against a besetting sin. And the dominant emotion that you have is you come to the Lord's Supper and you see the broken body of Christ. That you recognize just how much your sin deserves um, punishment. And that might be the dominant emotion you have because of your experience spiritually that week. Another week, you might be reveling because the Holy Spirit's worked uh, gratitude and goodness in you. And you, you, you've you seen some victory and you come and you see this as the, the wonderful sign of your adoption by God's grace into his family. And it's the most joyful time you can ever remember at the Lord's Supper. And both of those are valid experiences. Ones we'd even expect in the Lord's Supper, actually. So it's not that we want to create a uniform experience, but we want to give you what the range of things you might expect and and how to really profit from the Lord's Supper. That's what it's there for. God wants to come and meet with us, and that's an incredible thing. So if we're going to ask the question, is this a feast or a funeral, what's the answer? Yes, (laughs) <laughs> the answer is yes. It's a sober joy. We, we, it, there should not be a time where we don't come and realize that the Lord's Supper is a serious thing. Paul obviously labors that in 1 Corinthians 11 in putting sort of the negative side to things of what we talked about last month in terms of fencing the table. That if people come inappropriately, they take the symbols in their hands, that here's, there's sickness and death that waits, there's cursing that's there. And we have, we're taking the symbol of cursing in our hands that Christ was cursed for us. And so it should never be something that's done flippantly. But so there's a there's a sober aspect. Our sins deserve death and punishment. And uh, God loved us enough that he sent his own son to take that for us. And so there also ought to be this great joy. Um, and some, you know, it, it may change from time to time which of those dominates. But it's a sober joy. Well, in a very real sense, we are, when we come to the Lord's Supper... We're, we're remembering Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. And we're looking forward to the feast in heaven when he will again take of this meal with us. And we're going to deal with that in a little bit more detail in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But because of that, there's a very real sense in which it, communion it is going to run the gamut of emotions, the same gamut of emotions that Jesus himself experienced between Friday and Monday. Right. Right. That is... From exultant joy to great spiritual great grief pain. and sorrow great being sorrow. Uh, set apart, devoid of God. Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? That sense of forsakenness. Uh, there's a very real sense when, you, when we come to the table, we feel his forsakenness. Yeah. We feel his brokenness. But then at the other end of that... As we come to the end of the supper, we recognize the great joy of him being risen again and that we Mm -hmm. will again take of this feast with him in heaven. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the scripture doesn't say you have to feel this emotion. You can't feel this emotion. Uh, All of those things are going to be a part of our experience as we come to the table. Now, what about what about doubting? I, I. 
Can I doubt when I come to the table? I think that there's some things you can doubt of, and there's other things you ought not doubt. Um, there are, we're going to use in our podcast some uh, of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is, uh, if you've never seen the Larger Catechism before, it's available on the web um, for free. It's, it's uh, a document that was written in the 1640s. Um, as a teaching tool for the church, as a summary of the scriptures. And one of the questions they ask in the Westminster Larger Catechism, the, the Westminster uh, pastors, the divines that got together, said, they ask, may one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the preparation and what it should look like in a few minutes. But can somebody who doubts of his, of his being a Christian come to the Lord's Supper? Um, and really what they're trying to deal with here is, what if somebody's not assured? They really want to belong to Christ. They believe that they do. They're wanting to move that way, but they've got doubts. They're wondering, you know, is my repentance enough? Is my love for Christ enough? Am I, is my, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Yeah. And, 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 really, and by the way, we should say, uh, for those listening, pastors experience that too. Absolutely. Every, every Christian experiences time in their life where they doubt, where they doubt their faith, where, where, they, where they say, do I really have faith? Now, that isn't bad. In fact, I've often said, as I've sat down in counseling with various people over the years, and they've come to me and they've said, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. I've often said, that is wonderful. And they they look back at me and they go, what on earth are you talking about? And I say, because doubt is one of the greatest tools that God uses to get us back in his word and back examining our lives, our sins, what we believe about the gospel, Mm -hmm. God uses doubt to strengthen our faith. And now what we're going to, in just a minute here, you're going to read the Mm -hmm. larger catechism. And what the Westminster, the authors of the Westminster larger catechism were saying here is that doubting needs to, uh, if, if you come with doubts, it may or may not be that you're doubting your salvation, Right. But what you need to know is that as you come to the table, the purpose of the table is to give you faith. It is. The purpose of the table is to remove doubt. It's, it's meant to be another way of God proclaiming the gospel to us. And so it's a way to induce our trust in Christ. It's what it's designed to do. So if 80% of your life, you're sure you're a Christian... Or 90%, and here you are having a little 10% moment doubting. Right. Then you need to come. Absolutely. So go ahead and read that. Okay, so the answer to this, may one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. Here's the answer. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have a true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. So the person doesn't have a full assurance of their salvation in Christ. And in God's account has it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. The person wants to be assured and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity. There's a true repentance there, a true wanting to trust in Christ. In which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. You know, read that read that last part again. It's the sacrament is appointed, created by God for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. He is to bewail, set it aside, his unbelief 
and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. So what, what, are the, what are the wise pastors here trying to say? What they're trying to say is that if you're, one, if you're doubting, but you want to be found in Christ, and you're turning from your sins, and you're doubting that you're fully assured, this is the table for you. Because it's one of the means that God's given us that we might be assured that Christ is for us. I think a key word there is our unfeigned desire. If you're not just putting on a show, right? if you're not just coming to church really as a hypocrite, uh, pretending to be a Christian, but that you really want to be a Christian and you really want to be in Christ, well, that's a great sign that you are in Christ. Absolutely. In fact, that's assur- that is part of assurance. Somebody can have true faith without the assurance of it. And that was a tension that, that Westminster deals with very well. Um, that this is the place to come to have your assurance strengthened, to see the gospel, and thus have your belief in it strengthened. Let's go to some of the scripture passages. Uh, let's look at them. Let's look at them broadly. Okay. Um, start with the Gospels. We'll move on to Acts, and then we'll move to the the First Corinthians passage where Paul is talking. And let's talk about some of the words mm-hmm. that are used there. And how those apply to our emotions and the type of experience that we're to have. Okay, first thing I think of as we come to the Gospels, Uh okay, is that Jesus, before he did any of this, he gave thanks. Yep, absolutely. So he he offered up the cup, He, he did what was probably customary for the Passover meal, but he offered thanks. So the first thing I think we're to see in a in our participation is a heart thankfulness we're to have an attitude of thanksgiving uh, we're to come to receiving the bread and wine with thankful hearts saying thank you lord for doing this for me absolutely i think this is just it, it, it's a heightened sense of thankfulness i think that the the key mark of christians is is gratitude um, it's thankfulness. That's the entire pattern of our life. I'm not saying that always happens, but it's the way that God set it out is that it's a life of thankfulness. And that ought to be heightened in the Lord's Supper because we're, we're reminded, we're remembering uh, the extent to which God expended himself so that we could be his children. What are some of the other things you think about there in the, in the, in the gospel accounts when Jesus is first... Uh, bringing the Lord's Supper to us. He's taking what was the Old Testament Passover, and now he's meeting together with his apostles, and he's changing it. Mm-hmm. He's making it a new meal. Now, obviously, it's going to carry over some of that sense of feasting. Absolutely. And we see that as we continue through the New Testament, is they understood it as a feast. They often accompanied it. With the feast, First uh, Corinthians eleven. With yeah. the feast, First Corinthians eleven. It was well as Acts two. Well, in Jesus, in, in Matthew twenty six, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. he says, "But I say to you, I will not drink of this." This is Matthew twenty six twenty nine. I say to you, I will not drink of the of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he anticipates that feast that we read about both in Isaiah twenty five and in Revelation nineteen. He wants them to see that this is the old covenant feast transformed for this period of already not yet. That this is the feast for us now. This is the feast of the last days. It is. and that, But it also looks forward to another feast. It's the fullest revelation of the biblical feasts we've got. So there's a, there's a joy 
aspect to it of a rejoicing in God at his provision. Well, similarly to the Passover, it's a feast of redemption. Right. The Passover uh, foretold... He has become our Passover lamb. Exactly. Yeah. Christ is our lamb. So, so there is something of that feasting mentality, that the joy in the simplicity, the joy in the elements, the joy of eating the bread and the joy of drinking the wine or the, or the, uh, the juice, the joy of those things is a part then... Of the taking of the supper, it is, and, and strikes you when you when you look at it, Matthew twenty six here, the simplicity, mm-hmm. um, the the Westminster Divines and other places that we're not going to look at today talk about the way that the Lord's supper is to be conducted, and that their major point, um, they're refuting a bunch of other things that were going on in the Church of England at the time, and the way they conducted the Lord's supper, it's drastically simple. Mm-hmm. The point is not to draw attention to the elements or to the way that it's done or, or what the guy who's serving the elements wears or how you take it or what you do with it. it or whether the, the plates are silver or, or gold. gold. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that you get these two simple things, the fruit of the vine and bread, and those are given to us as the sure signs um, of Christ given for us. So he gives thanks, he says, he gives them the bread, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And and that's that, that memory thing that you're, you're mm-hmm. saying. Yep. Is no longer are we remembering with the with this meal, no longer are we remembering the Passover, right? the exodus out of Egypt. But now we're remembering something greater. Absolutely. Our exodus out of Egypt, our exodus out of our sin. By Christ. Uh, yeah. So so there's there's, we've talked about, uh, there being thankfulness, uh, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of anticipation, uh, but there's also a remembrance. Mm-hmm. Now, that remembrance, what's that going to have accompanying it? Sadness, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, he says, this, this, Savior is the, died. this is the blood, of, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for, for forgiveness of sins. Is that in the supper... It's a great joy. It's a feasting together. It's God coming to us, or the way that Calvin thought of it, was that the Holy Spirit lifts us up to heaven, um, where we commune there with God. But it, it's it's a uh, these words. I think sometimes we have a hard time putting it together. But it, it's a serious feast, in the sense of what we're feasting about is that we're sinners, and we've got a redeemer. And so it, we've got to kind of bring these together. You know, I think we can end up with something that's that's so. Flip and joyful. Oh, we're so thankful that Christ died for us, which is true. Um, but without realizing that the reason that had to happen is because we were such wicked idolaters that that was the only way that God could solve the problem. And so it's it's this, you know, it's this both and. Well, do you think that this, uh, when certain churches say you must be happy when you're celebrating the supper? Okay, now there are certain churches that say you must be sad. All oh, right, right. And they treat it as a funeral service. Oh, in service. certain churches that, that violate this very question that we just read in terms of somebody who doubts. Churches yes. where very few um, people come to the Lord's Supper because there are so few that are absolutely, positively sure, 100% that, you know, all's right with them and God. And they've set a standard that's too high to come to the Supper and forgotten that it's a Supper for weak and doubting Christians. Well, is the church that says you must be happy and joyful, are they setting a standard too high? Oh, I think that they are. I think that they're not letting the full range of emotions that we're trying to explain now, they're not permitting people to experience that. Um, they're not permitting people to see that in every sacrament uh, there's blessings and curses. And that even in the blessing, it's a curse relieved. It's a curse that you deserve 
It's a curse that's been taken off of you by Christ. And there's there's a uh, there's a great joy in that. But there's a great reminder of the fact that this brokenness, this is what I deserve. This is my blood that deserves to be poured out right here, right now. And anything less than that is grace. And so it's, it, you know, I, I, I don't think we can dictate the emotion, whether it's great somberness or great joy. I know we, we ought not dictate it because God might deal with different people differently at his table. And we ought not dictate what the Holy Spirit does in somebody's life. There's a resource. Uh, us talking about this makes me think of, and I don't have it right in front of me, um, but it's, it's an article in Carl Truman's. Carl Truman is the professor of church history out at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Carl has an article in his book, The Wages of Spin, called What What Do Miserable Christians Sing? <laughs> and it's obviously you see the humor in the title, because so often Christians don't want to admit they're miserable. Right. And I I wonder if we've done the same thing here with the Lord's Supper hmm. as we've done with our songs. Hmm. That so often the only songs we sing are these overly triumphalistic songs. Right. And the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper goes to one of these two extremes. Either I have to be so depressed taking this, or I have to be so joyful. What if I'm just in the middle? Right. What if right. I'm doubting? Well, I, that's where we have to come back and say, okay, what are the things we're to look for? Okay, the remembrance, the anticipation, uh, the joy, even in the simplicity. The, we're going to talk about another different anticipation. So the, what Sean was trying to say was the anticipation of the feast in heaven. Yes. But there is an anticipating you ought to have about the Lord's Supper that we'll, we'll think about. The, le- that leads up to, to our, taking of. our taking of the Lord's Supper. Yes, we'll definitely get there. Now, how about as we move into the book of Acts? What do we see when we get to Acts chapter 2 that uh, directs our emotions? Yeah, again, it's, it's very simplistic. Um, it's in, in small groups. It's house to house. But it's a part of what they're, they were devoted to, which is interesting. When we think about it is that could we say that about our churches, that it was something that had so gripped their hearts and was a part of their corporate piety that they, that they wanted it. They looked forward to it. They didn't reserve it. They, they used it even frequently, our own Westminster standards say. Well, I wonder if we don't put the Lord's Supper under glass, as it were. Oh, that's interesting. We make, sure. it, we make it like an artifact in a museum. We make it, you know, untouchable. And we can only, which, which is exactly the error of Roman Catholicism. Yep. Is there were points in Roman Catholic history where uh, the people, the common man, could not drink of the cup. Because they were so afraid that something might spill or could not eat of the bread because they were so afraid a crumb might fall. And, and there was this, this exaltation of the elements. I wonder if evangelicalism doesn't do that. But I think you can go both ways. You talked a little bit earlier about this taking communion privately, and I would say that it is reserved for the church. But it's reserved for the church to use. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's you're saying you can go the other way, too, where it's so reserved that it just hardly ever happens, and it's... A nice thing, but not a well. It's not necessary in terms of salvation, but it's certainly necessary in terms of people's growth and grace. If yeah. God's appointed this thing that we might be more convinced of the truth of the gospel by seeing it, then we're depriving people if mm-hmm. we're not doing it frequently. Well, it, if if God said called you up and he said, "I want you to preach this Sunday," but I wanted you to know that when you're done preaching, 
I'm going to come and give a short message. I'm going to I'm going to come and give a testimonial. Okay. Would it. you would you turn God down? Would you say on the phone with God, you know what, Father? Um, thanks, I think that's no great. Thanks. We we only have an hour. Right. So maybe maybe next week I'm not going to be here. Maybe you could come. <laughs> and do that. we wouldn't do that. And that that's that's what the the church in Acts two did is they devoted themselves to these things regularly. Another article by Michael Horton uh, available available in um, I'm not thinking of the journal that it's available in uh, not Mars Hill Journal uh, the uh, it's it'll come to me later is he has an article called at least weekly okay talking about Acts chapter two talking about the New Test that in the New Testament. It gives all the appearance that they were having the Lord's Supper, not just when they met together on the first day of the week. Right. Although later in the book of Acts, Paul is going to say, we gathered on the first day of the week to break the bread, essentially saying that the, the center of our worship, our worship yep. is that. Right. Center um, of the week. Is center of the week is that meeting together around Christ. Right. Uh, but at the... Uh, at the, at the same time, you've got this throughout the um, throughout Acts chapter two. You've got them regularly doing it. You've got them eating their meals together as right. well as breaking the bread together. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Yep. So you've got the two. You've got the taking the meals and the breaking the bread together. We could go into great detail on this. Um, if you go back. A few months to our conversation with Jack Kinnear, I believe we had a further dis- we had a longer discussion about this. How Luke uses this phrase "breaking of bread" mm-hmm. that it progresses through his gospel and into Acts to become synonymous with uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper. Right, right. But again, how then? What are the emotions here? In Acts chapter 2. I, I think it's, um, it, it goes on from here. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. So there's a praise aspect. We missed that in Matthew 26, that the way that they concluded that meal was they sang some psalms. Yes. And so it, it's appropriate, and different churches do this different ways. Do you sing during communion? Do you sing after it? But certainly praise is an element of this. Um, some churches have a special time of confession to, to get the sober side of the joy, but we ought to try and hit both somehow. Many of our churches have a confession of sin already further up front in the service, and so you've, you've done that already. There's no need to do it again. Um, well, let me go out on a limb here. Sure. Is Do we want music during the communion service if there's a possibility of such a wide range of emotion? Do we want to be directing that emotion by the music? Right. I think that if you were going to pick something, you'd want to pick something that would cover the possible emotions that people would have. Yes. Um, so and you so don't it, want something overly triumphalistic. Absolutely. There's there's a song that we use that we actually split in the use of it in our church, and I'm trying to remember the uh, the name of it. Um, uh, it basically it, it would cover this. Let me see if I can find it. Um, Sacred Head Now Wounded. Is that yes, Oh just, Sacred Head? Yes, we just sang that on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I think it's Oh Sacred Head Now Wounded. The, um, but if you take a look at that, it's 247 in Trinity, if your church uses that, the red Trinity Red. But what it does, we frequently split this song. Mm-hmm. And for a song of repentance, we'll use the first and second verse. Yes. And then as the beginning of our songs of thanksgiving, after we've confessed our sins... 
and heard and heard the assurance of pardon, we'll come to the third verse, which begins, What language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Yes. yes. And so it, it leads us in sober joy. And, and if we're going to choose a song, then we ought to choose one that allows everybody to lend their voice to it, if we're going to sing. Now, singing is, it's debatable whether we ought to sing. And certainly, I think the Westminster Divines were more taken with quietness, I think, in their view. And that's probably the, the dominant view in our churches. I know in our church, there's instrumental music as the elements are being um, passed out. What we want to do and we want to be careful of and and how you figure this out is sort of up to you. You want to try and make it something that people do together. Yes, they're individually transacting with God, but they're individually transacting with God together. And sometimes we don't do that very well, that it's a communion of the saints as well as communion with God. Yes. And so how we work that out, we should think about, though, because a lot of times what people are there for is really uh, a bunch of souls gathered individually transacting with God, but not really necessarily transacting with each other. One suggestion of how churches will do this, instead of um, people just handing the tray to each other, the, the usher or the elder, whoever passes it first, as they pass the bread, they'll say the body of Christ for you. And then that person as they hand it to the next person, I'm not commending this, I'm just saying this is one way that people do this, is they speak that word to each other. They say the body of Christ for you. And in that way, they join their hearts together by by repeating those gospel words to each other. And it's it's, it's a way that you could do it. But we need to think about this, that it's not just a, a bunch of individuals transacting with God, but God coming to a congregation. And meeting with them. And I don't know how you balance those perfectly. But um, but we ought to try and balance them. And not settle just simply for something that's blasé, that means nothing to nobody. Or something that's purely individualistic where everyone has their eyes closed and they're each just praying. Uh, I don't necessarily know how to merge the two of those. Perhaps that's why the corporate singing of a hymn is appropriate. Because it helps bring out that communal aspect uh, of it. I think the place to begin in our study of that is certainly in Acts chapter 2, because Acts chapter 2 is one of those idealistic chapters that just everything, it seems like everything's right. Now, as soon as you get to chapter 3, you're going to, you get, start to see problems in the church. But in Acts chapter 2, there's this image, this brief moment where the church seems to have it all together, and it gives us this vision of what the church could be. We're both both communing with God, and it's that communion with God that has a huge impact on the way we relate to other people. Absolutely. We gain his heart as we commune with him. Yes, that's what koinonia, what fellowship, is all about. And that's why fellowship here in in Acts 2.42 is one of the four marks of the church. Hmm. Because if we are not in true fellowship, not just socializing... But if we're not in true fellowship with one another, we cannot claim to know Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that aspect of the relationship has to be there. In fact, because it's communion, I think we can say that the Lord's Supper is going to contain all of the 
attitudes and emotions that any relationship would have. Now, think about that. You and I have have a friendship. We've had a friendship for quite a number of years. Right. Okay. How many how many emotions have we felt in our relationship? All of them. All of them. I I've been ticked at you sometimes. I've been rejoicing with you sometimes. We've cried at times. I, there's the whole gamut is there. Right. So if the Lord's Supper is part of a relationship with Christ, right, then it's going to have all those. Absolutely. And it's going to reflect and encourage and develop our relationship with other people because it's it's at a particular point where our um our gospel sensitivity is meant to be increased and if we've harbored a grudge or or we're trying to look over a sin and we're not having a good time with it it's when our gratitude's renewed that sometimes we'll go back and we'll re we'll put a relationship back together again that we've been resisting. That the Lord deals with us there at the table because we're finally ready to deal with him. And we get ourselves in that posture. I think that's why uh, we, at least weekly taking of the Lord's Supper is so important because so frequently, and we hate to admit this as pastors, as individual believers or of our people, but sometimes, frankly, that's, that's when people get serious. Is when they know the Lord's Supper's coming and they know it's a serious thing, suddenly they'll suddenly be more vigilant about their sin and about the fact that they're, they, they need to, uh, to, get, to get right with God in a particular area or with another believer. So this is a great inducement oh, yeah. to sanctification. Well, I think about Jesus' words about leaving your gift at the altar. Yep, Matthew 5, absolutely. And that, that's the Lord's Supper. Hey, you want to decrease the conflict in your church? Have the Lord's Supper every week. Because people there will be coming in sin if they're not um, if they're not together with other people in true fellowship. They're not reconciled. Well, we've certainly found our church in the past year has gone from monthly communion to weekly communion. And one of the things that we have found is uh, that it has helped our elders with regards to discipline. Hmm. Because one of the issues of discipline, one of the things we, we say if somebody is being disciplined for a sin in the body is that they can't take communion. Right. Well, what does that matter if you're only taking communion monthly or quarterly? You know, just don't show up that Sunday of the month and it's no big deal. Right. It's just right. like old times. Right. But when you're having communion every week with one another and with Christ and... You're in sin. Suddenly, there's this desire. I've got to get clean. Right. I've got to. I've got to repent and return. I've got to get leave my gift at the altar and go reconcile so that I can come and commune with the Lord. And it's. I think that is something that the evangelical church has lost is that sense of true communion with Christ, and that every Sunday, every time we gather as God's people. We are communing with Christ. Well, I think it's sort of against our spirit of the age where we've tried to make worship um, not just uh, intelligible to outsiders, but comfortable to them. Uh, yes. I'm all for welcoming visitors and, and making the way that we lead worship in such a way that if it's somebody's first time that they're there, that they have a way to get into the service and, and, to, and to, to, to climb inside of it and participate, participate in it if they're a believer. But I think that we can take our worship and we can make it so sanitized uh, that we never bring people up against uh, the holiness of God. And against the seriousness of that when we come into worship, we, we have to do... Uh, with the God who's a consuming fire. 
And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about, is that the consuming fire has been sent on his, spent on his son and not upon us. But we have to have that sense that that's whom we come before. And if the Lord's Supper is relegated to an occasional thing, then people don't have, they're not brought up against the Lord and his demands and his holiness as frequently. And that's a very great need of ours. Well, you know, we see that here in Acts chapter 2. Because because of this devotion to the word, to prayer, to the to the sacraments, to the fellowship, the very next verse we read that they were filled with awe. Yep. And so it's it's that awe of God is what they're is what they're sensing. Now contributing to that is the fact that the apostles have been gifted with miracles. Right. And people are being healed. But notice there that the awe in the next verse flows from the means of grace. Yep. It doesn't flow from the miracles. The miracles are there to point back to the means Christ. of grace. Yep. And so the the awe needs to be a part of that emotion. Part of our experience needs to be the awe of redemption. Mm-hmm. The awe of Jesus glorified of, of Jesus raised, ascended, and glorified before the Father. I think that what we're, we're sort of heading towards, and it's probably a good transition to do it, is that the Lord's Supper is not something you can just sort of drop into on Sunday. Uh, worship is not something you can just drop into on Sunday. That you haven't pondered worshiping the Lord, you haven't thought about him, you haven't been transacting with him in repentance and faith throughout the week, but it is instead... Um, it's something that you've got to come to uh, with some preparation beforehand, like worship. Um, one of the things that I struggle with uh, in our services is that I recognize that it is challenging as I lead for somebody who's never been there before to jump in. I want them to, but true worship requires that people come uh, with something beforehand. And the Lord's Supper is no different than that. Um, the larger catechism that we've, we've looked at one question already um, asks, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? Um, and the answer goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Those that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to it to prepare themselves by examining themselves of their being in Christ, that they're a believer, of their sins and wants, that of this uh, confessing known sin, asking the Holy Spirit, search my heart, no, no, uh, any untrue way in me. Show me my sins, Lord. Of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brothers. Ask the question, Lord, am I reconciled with everybody that I'm supposed to? Love to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong. Of their desires after Christ, of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. So to, in order to... to get what it is that God has for you in the Lord's Supper. It takes a little bit of preparation ahead of time. And and it ought to. It's a serious, wonderful, great thing. But this will probably resonate with you. If you come unprepared to the Lord's Supper, you frequently walk away with what you came with, which was not much. Mm. But when you come and you're ready and you're anticipating that here God wants to feed you to demonstrate the gospel, then you walk away confirmed in that gospel. And it's, it's, a great, it's a great joy. You know, I have a quote here from J.C. Ryle that's, that says just what you just said, that if you, don't, if you come with nothing, then you take away nothing. Hmm. He says this. Uh, he says, we shall do well 
to keep steadily in view this simple view of the Lord's Supper, that a special blessing is attached to a worthy use of it, as well to the worthy use of every ordinance appointed by Christ. So in other words, uh, all the ordinary means of grace have a special blessing attached to them. But what he's saying here is that there is no special blessing if you don't come in a right manner. Right. He says that there is any other means by which Christians can eat Christ's body and drink Christ's blood accepting faith, we must always steadily deny. In other words, the only way we can come is faith. And I think that's very, very important is that as you prepare to come, uh, this takes us back again to last week, or la- I'm sorry, last month, is you've got to fence the table yourself. Mm-hmm. You've got to examine yourself. Do I have faith? Because if you don't have faith... There's nothing there for you. No, you're eating a piece of bread and you're drinking a cup of juice and that's it. Right. But then Ryle goes on, he says, He that comes to the Lord's table with faith in Christ may confidently expect to have his faith increased by receiving the bread and the wine. But he that comes without faith has no right to expect a blessing. And this is just what you said a moment ago. He says, empty he comes to the ordinance, and empty he goes away. Interesting. Interesting. I think of uh, the title of a recent book by an author whom I enjoy. It's a collection of essays by... um, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Andre Sue, I think, is probably how you pronounce it. But it's it's quoting um, the words of Jacob. The title of the book won't let you go until you bless me. And I think that we need to have that attitude about the Lord's Supper, that we come clinging to Christ and we say, don't let me go unless you bless me. I need this gospel. What Luther said, and a, and a, a more recent author has said, is that, that we need this preaching of the gospel every day. If the if the fuel of the Christian life, if the fuel to do goodness is gratitude, if it's a thankful heart that I need in order to be motivated when I wake up on Monday morning to go do goodness, to go do good works on, uh, that have been appointed for me by God, then what I need is a new side of grace. The only way I get a new side of grace is if I see anew my guilt. And there it is, a sober joy, that I see my guilt anew, that it cost God this, but God was willing to spend it. And that I come wanting to be blessed anew by the gospel. Hmm. So the the emotions, the right emotions, come when we come rightly. Yes. That's a great way to put it, I think. Yeah. So the, the, the emotions, in a sense, follow the actions, but they also follow the attitudes. Well, I think that by preparing our hearts... Um, we prepare ourselves for the right emotions by coming and, and re- recognizing our sins and wants of our being in Christ of that he was given for us. We come expecting not only to see the cost with which or the, the cost that the penalty of our sins is, but also that it's been taken for us. We get the both if we come prepared. But if we don't, um, we're likely not, as Ryle says, to come and come empty and to leave empty yeah. and gain nothing. There's a great resource. Um, it's called a Communicant's Companion, Instructions for the Right Receiving of the Lord's Supper. And it's by Matthew Henry, who many of us are familiar with his commentary. And he has a sermon in there 
uh, entitled Directions in What Frame of Spirit We Should Come to and Attend Upon This Ordinance. In other words, what frame of mind, what's our attitude to be when we come to receive the supper? And let me just give you a taste of some of the things that he says in here. Uh, It's all by points, as Matthew Henry normally does. His first point is that we have to come with a fixedness of thought. Mm. That our mind has to be set on Christ. His second is that we have to come with an evenness and a, and a calmness of affection, free from uh, the he says free from the disorders and ruffles of passion. Mm. In other words, it's that it's that joyous awe. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's it's that reverent uh, that reverent gratitude. It's that combination where we come evenly and we come and we say, God, what have you done here? Teach me, minister to me. Oftentimes, uh, I will say at the end of my sermon, I'll say, you know, you've just, God has just spoken to you through the preacher. Now God wants to speak to you in a different way completely. He, he wants to talk to your taste buds and he wants to use your senses and in that way to minister to you by faith. So God's going to preach the sermon now. Okay, the third thing Henry says, he says, we should address ourselves holy awe and reverence. We're coming before divine majesty here. Uh, he says, we should come with jealousy. We should be jealous for the Lord when we come to the table. Uh, let me just give you a couple more here. He says, uh, with a gracious confidence, as a child has for a father. Uh, I, I hope I don't get any receipts from the from buying this book. This is a great great book. He says oh, we need to come with an with an earnest desire to commune with him. Mm. Now that takes you right back to Jesus' own words, doesn't mm-hmm. it? What did he say to the apostles before uh, he celebrated the Passover? He says, "I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you." Could could it be the case? That God desires to meet with congregations all through this world who are not setting the table that he might come and be a guest. And people not knowing Mm. that God wants to meet with them don't come to that table. And yet it's the very thing that we're made for. The foretaste of heaven that the whole Lord's day is and in particular the Lord's table is. We're, We're not treating it that way. We're not asking God, give me a taste of heaven. I want to see heaven on fallen earth today in these moments with you. Show me what it's going to be like to feast with you, to have you come uh, to earth, for heaven and earth to merge, for what it's going to be like at that great feast. Um, And I think that's what God's designed it there for us, to, to strengthen us for the walk that is now, even as we look forward to what's not yet. So I've prepared... I've, I've done all, all I could this week. I've had a busy week. And, and I've tried to get on my knees every day, and I, I've tried to be in the Word, and I've, I've earnestly desired the Lord. And so here I am coming to commune with God's people. Uh, what's my attitude now? Well, I think that that's the catechism writers anticipate that. It says, um, what's required of, of those that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? So actually when the minister's uh, standing in front and he's saying things and he's he's doing actions uh, with his hands, with the bread and the cup, how, how are you supposed to think about that? And I'll just read the answer, and this is the Matt Paraphrase version, so we'll get rid of the old English and make it familiar for you. 
It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. That's interesting. We don't do that very much. That we're, that we're come, they're saying that, that we have this anticipation, God, I'm waiting for you here, and that he's promised to come. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Um, I was saying before we started the podcast that one of the things that I do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in my church is my wife actually bakes the bread that we use, and I hold up a whole loaf of bread that is absolutely picture perfect. And I hold it up for people that they might see uh, that it that as Christ was once whole, and then I tear the bread, that he is no longer whole, but broken for them, and then raised again, whole, to make us whole, if you will. Mm. Um, and so the, the, when the minister tears the bread, that's not just a throwaway. That's God speaking, as Sean put earlier. He's trying to speak to you in that. Heedfully discern the Lord's body, affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, sober, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding him on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. And so this is something that is, it's multiform what you would do, what you would think about. It strikes me in, in, in reading these questions that I think that a lost art um, in our modern world is the ability to think about one thing. We're extraordinarily poor with as many voices that, that pour into our lives moment by moment all throughout the day. We've talked about this before in, in, on other podcasts. We're very bad at being able to concentrate on one thing and not... Um, you know, have our mind go to the work that we need to do tomorrow, which is my problem. Embarrassingly, even sometimes when I'm serving the Lord's Supper, that I'm well, thinking about the next sermon. You know, Matt, we both suffer from this, and I think this podcast is a perfect example. We can never focus on one thing. No, but it's terrible because here God is giving himself to us. And unless we learn, relearn this ability to really focus and to, and to to seek there to meet with God. Um, he gives us the opportunity, if you will, for a mountaintop every Sunday. And, and Now, we uh, want to be careful there because again, it's not subjective. It's not subjective. But he promises that that's where he wants to come and meet us. Yes. I put it so boldly one time in a sermon talking about preaching that God speaks here every Sunday. Hmm. Doesn't it does not depend? I you know I said something similar recently. I said that it does not depend on the preacher. It doesn't. I mean, I could I could be an awful sermon for me this week. But if we come expecting God meet with me, meet with us as we come around this table, He's already promised He's going to be there. He meets with you. He's ready to meet with you at the table. I'm not saying it's going to be the same experience every time, but He's there to meet with you and to minister His grace to you. It's why He's appointed the supper. It's not a snoozer. You never find in the scriptures when somebody meets with God that it's a snoozer. <laughs> now, they're usually lying down. Yes, they are. Well, perhaps that's not... why we ought to take the Lord's Supper then. <laughs> but it's not, it's not for the reason you would think. They're not taking a nap. But to get back to the single point that I was attempting to make, if we haven't learned the art of meditation during the week, 
it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to do it on Sunday and to do because, it with the Lord's Supper. Because that's what we're to do in, in right reception yep. is, is to meditate on what's happening. Right. And in that meditation, we are going to feel a broad range of emotions Absolutely. as we subjectively experience that. Yep. And it's those emotions that then God wants to minister by faith to us uh, in the context of those emotions. Yep, absolutely. He, he's going to teach us through joy, through sorrow, through difficulty, through doubt, through confusion. He's, yep. he's going to teach us. Um, I want to I come back to a point you made just a little bit earlier and a point that the Westminster Divines brought up here in question 174 of the larger catechism. Mm-hmm. And that is, what role does our sin play? Hmm. Particularly our repentance over sin. Mm-hmm. Because you know, faith and repentance always go together. Absolutely. So if faith is required for the Lord's Supper, then a certain amount of repentance Absolutely. is also desperately necessary. Oh, Heidelberg, I'll let you read your quote here. I know that you've got it open. Yeah, go ahead. But Heidelberg, the question um, that talks about, uh, I don't think I've got it in my, um, I, I don't have it available right here. But the basic gist of the, the question in the Heidelberg Catechism asks, who are to come to the Lord's table? And the way it begins is, those who are displeased with themselves. Yes. And I think that's a wonderfully experiential way to talk about it. The table is not for people who think they're doing great. Now, it's, we've said that before, and we're going to say that again. It's, it's that the people come renewing, living, experiencing anew that lifestyle, Brother Spurgeon called it, of repentance and faith. That it's not the act of an instant, but the acquisition of a lifestyle. And that lifestyle is strengthened, it's reinforced by coming to the table. Mm. Here's John Owen. He says, it is the table of the Lord that we are invited to draw nigh unto. Our Lord hath a large heart and a bountiful hand, hath made plentiful provision for our souls at this table, and he says to us by his spirit in his word, eat, O my friends, yea, drink abundantly. It is that feast that God hath provided for sinners. And there are three sorts of sinners that I would speak a word unto. And then he briefly summarizes them here. And this is what I want to read you. He says, there are three sorts I would speak unto. To stir them up unto a due exercise of faith in this ordinance. Again, it's got to have the faith or else it's empty. Right. He says, according to their condition, as, as their condition requires. He says, there are those such as are not sensible of their sins as they ought to be. Hmm. There are people who don't recognize their sin as they should. They know they are not. They know they are, they are not able to get their hearts uh, affected with their sins as they desire. And they know this, but they're not there. Right. Okay. That's, well, that's one group. He says, there are some that are so burdened and overexpressed with the sense of their sins, they're scarcely able to hold up under the weight of them. In fact, you get the senses in, in Owen here, they're scarcely able to lift the bread and, and the cup. Yeah, yeah, so burdened with their sins. They're, they're under doubts and fears wherewith, Owen says, they are distressed. And then the third one, he says, there are sinners who are enjoy, in enjoyment of a sense of the pardon of sin. 
and do desire to have hearts to improve it in thankfulness and fruitfulness. Hmm. Now I'll tell you, is there one group there that can't come? No, Owen is saying that every each one of these three may come, but that each one of these three is dealing with different attitudes, different emotions, different struggles, and each of them is going to need a different thing from God mm-hmm. through yeah, the, the supper. supper. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, there's one th- more thing we should probably think about, which is, is there anything that you would do after the supper? See, we're, as well, Americans, yes, go, we, we go to lunch. We go right? to lunch, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Watch the game. Yeah, we'll get to baptism here sometime. But um, the, the Westminster Divines, I think, rightly understood that there's a reflection. So there's an, an anticipation and preparation. Yeah, you said we'll get to baptism. Why? Because of the reflection that's Because of the reflection involved in, in baptism. baptism. Some other time in another podcast, we'll talk about the fact that uh, baptism is not just for um, the infant or the professing adult who's baptized, but it's meant to be for the congregation. And few of us have ever heard that kind of teaching before. Yes. But in the Lord's Supper, there, there ought to be an anticipation with preparation. There's a way to, there's a reception, a way to receive it. And then there also ought to be a reflection, yes. a looking back on it. Um, question 175 of the larger catechism says it this way. What's the duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? And it answers this way. The duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have behaved themselves therein and with what success. If they find quickening and comfort to bless God for it, beg the continuance of it, watch against relapses, fulfill their vows, and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. But if they find no present benefit, more exactly to review their preparation too, and carriage out the way they carried themselves at the sacrament, in both which, if they can approve themselves to God and their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. But if they say they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence. What they're saying is, look, did you get something out of it? And if you didn't, wonder why. Wonder why you didn't get something out of it. Because you ought to have. When you look at Acts chapter 2 that we looked at earlier. Right. What you see there is that their attendance upon, their devotion Mm-hmm. Their, their continued devotion. I mean, there's two words there that are strengthening the phrase. Right. Their continued devotion to these four things, the Lord's Supper being, being included among them. The result is that their hearts are inflamed with love for one another. Yep. And that's exactly what the divines are saying, is if your heart is not inflamed After with a the love... right. Then something's wrong. Forgot a neighbor. Maybe yeah. you maybe you've not. That's come what the gospel's supposed to do in people's lives. Yeah. Uh, Puritan Thomas Doolittle he says this. He says, when you have thus considered the blood of Christ, then draw forth holy love to do its part, as faith has done its part. As Ryle says, we've got to come mm-hmm. with the faith. Mm-hmm. As faith has done its part, and indeed when faith goes before us. It'll be more easy to act out on all the rest. As we said earlier, if if the actions are right, then the right emotions will come. Yes. If, now, let love see, Doolittle continues, he says, Let love see with faith's eyes, and it will be quickly inflamed. 
Let faith make application and love quickly feel the benefit and show it in its actions. Hmm. And see, that's what we see in Acts chapter 2 is a devotion to the things of the Lord results in a love for the brethren. Hmm. And that's where that's where we need to go. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul institutes the Lord's Supper, tells them how to take the Lord's Supper, he says, it is Christ's death we proclaim until he comes. Right. And so there's a sense in which as we reflect upon the supper, as we come from the supper, having taken it, that then we now have a duty to proclaim the very message that we have identified ourselves with right. in the supper. Right. And enjoyed. Seen anew what the benefit of it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's neat. And it we ought not miss that in this what we're trying to do is get people centered on the gospel. That's precisely what the supper is supposed to do, is that it's supposed to center people on the gospel. What I found as a pastor, what I found as an individual believer, is that most of the time people know what to do. They know the right things. They know what the commandments are. It's that they lack the motivation. And it's the gospel that gives them that motivation. It's that renewed gratitude, that thankfulness, that that we look at sin like Joseph and we go, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? Or we look at a work that stands before us and it's going to cause a sacrifice and we say, oh, Lord, could I not do this work that you've prepared beforehand when you've done so much for me? Mm. I couldn't. I could not. I, I must do it because look at how much you've done for me. And that's what the table is supposed to do. It's supposed to renew that gratitude that we walk in that grace throughout the week. One of our daughters had uh, was having some medical problems just a few years ago. And so we went into this specialist in, into their office, and I was noticing up on the wall in this doctor's office, the wall was just, the doctor particularly dealt with children, and on the wall of the office were all of these cards and letters, some of them 5, 10, 15 years after this doctor had seen this child. Hmm. And it was that remembrance of what that doctor had done for them that caused them to reflect with gratitude and to keep, in a sense, coming back to this doctor with their cards Hmm. and saying, thank you again for helping me through that particularly difficult time. Now, you, you move that over to the cross, and it's not just a particularly difficult time. It's redemption from sin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, Jesus is making all things new, and that's that kind of gratitude you said in the Heidelberg touches upon so well in that mm-hmm. gratitude is the source of our motivation. Yep. Which our gratitude is not simply a general thankfulness. You know, I'm, I'm a thankful kind of guy. Right. I'm thankful to Christ. Right. For Absolutely. his redemption. Absolutely. Well, let's close uh, today. Normally, uh, I close... Uh, issuing a uh, a welcome to join us again. But I think I'm going to close today using uh, benediction from the book of Jude. Uh, These are the last two verses of the book of Jude. And I want you to think about, as we close, these verses in relationship to the Lord's Supper and how these verses call us not only to go forth into the world, but to go forth in the presence of God, the same presence that we come to each time we come to the Lord's Supper. So listen to these words. Now to him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. That's us. That's us in the supper Hmm. before the Lord in Christ in the gospel. Now listen how he ends it. And I send you off this month with these words. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.